The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. Unfortunately, with the current economic and cultural climate, as well as the stagnancy we've been seeing in the job market specifically regarding DEI, we've had to have some tough conversations and have come to the decision to close the 10th Collective on June 30th. Thank you to Palette for providing the platform for the 10th Collective. Thanks to State of Black Design for the partnership. And a special thanks to all the black designers who joined. As far as the Revision Path job board, it'll go dark for a few weeks, but will return by the beginning of August. Feel free to contact us through our website, revisionpath.com, if you have any questions. Thanks again for your support. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Natalie Marie Dunbar. She's a public speaker, a teacher, a content strategy expert, and is the author of From Solo to Scaled, Building a Sustainable Content Strategy Practice. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I am Natalie Marie Dunbar. By day, I am a senior manager, content design, UX content design uh, with Walmart. And by night and weekends, I am an author, a speaker, workshop facilitator, and sometime yoga teacher. Wow, that's a lot. Yes. <laughs> How's the year been going so far? It has been full of travel. I think I'm making up for lost time during the pandemic. I've been on a plane every month since last September with the exception of October and February. And I did do a road trip in February, but it was not by plane. I have been traveling for speaking and work. So it's been a very busy year. Nice. So aside from the travel, I'm curious, like, how has 2023 been different for you than, say, last year? 2023 has been it, kind of aside from the travel, but because of the travel. Things have been opening up more. I'm finding that uh, whether for work or for, for, you know, conferences or things, there's a lot more in-person 
appearances happening again, a lot more in-person just interaction, which I definitely have missed. But I think my battery for my energy, like I have a different level where I'm able to withstand like what I call peopling. (laughs) After a while, it's like usually I can be out and about for hours. I can work a full day and then go to a conference or go to a meetup or go to a social event and I'd be fine. Nowadays, I have to like think like what time does it start? How long does it, you know, do I need to be there? And when do I need to shut down so I can kind of take care of myself? Mm. So that's definitely been been a highlight of this year, especially with all the travel. You know, I just kind of started back traveling, like doing speaking stuff last year in October. And I 100% understand what you mean. Like prior to the pandemic, I was traveling for work. I would be in a different city or something every month. And it was just, a I don't know, I guess I just had that rhythm. But because of the pandemic, I really lost that I think some of it is stamina and some of it is also Mm -hmm. just, you know, we've all gotten comfortable for the most part at home and like breaching that to go into the outside world. You're like, I kind of want to go back home now. Like exactly, (laughs) exactly that I can relate. (laughs) So do you have any um, plans for the summer? You doing more traveling? I definitely want to connect with family. I'm in California. Most of my family's in Texas area, Louisiana. Some in Tennessee. So I'd love to be able to reconnect with family members that I haven't had a chance to see since, you know, the all traveling and everything started up again. And I would like to actually take a trip that does not involve business or any type of work. I haven't figured out what that is yet, but we'll see. Yeah, I think you can work something in, like maybe, especially if it's going to be in the way, not in the way, but in the, in the path of family or something, like maybe... I don't know, like go to New Orleans or something like yeah, that. Who knows? Definitely. My sister and I got together last year in August after not being able to visit for a while. And we have this plan. We haven't implemented it yet, but we are wanting to go to Cape Verde off the western coast of Africa and just really kind of immerse ourselves in the culture there. So hopefully that'll be something. I don't think it'll happen this year, but I think, you know, looking forward to maybe in 2024. That'll be fun. That that sounds yeah. like a fun trip. Yeah. So with everything you're you're doing, you know, you mentioned you're you're working. You mentioned this book that we will talk about in a little bit. What does sort of a typical day look like for you? Oh wow. I have my day job. I am in a lot of meetings. <laughs> uh, I set aside quiet time for myself to actually be heads down to actually do content work. I think the meeting thing is just kind of, you know, part of that is is working virtually and, and or remote and just kind of like trying to get all the meetings in, especially across time zones. We're lucky enough to have a very talented team that works, you know, from all points of the U.S. So um, that's a thing. But, you know, sometimes there's the occasional 730 in the morning meeting. For me, I've had them, well, not in my current work, but... At a past job, I remember being on on calls at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Not always, though. Thank goodness. But yeah. And then after that, I try to take a break, whether I'm taking a, a walk outside or just hanging out with my pups, connecting with, you know, family here in the house, you know, kind of regrouping, touching, touching down on like the stuff that makes you human. That's, and then I usually spend 
hour or two doing something having to do with the book, uh, by extension, you know, maybe looking at speaking opportunities, calendaring, trying to figure out, oh, is it time for me to send out my newsletter, which I need to write myself a note because it actually is. <laughs> note to self. There are days sometimes that I'll tell you that, you know, I'll start with the day job at 8, 8.39 and I'm still going at nine o'clock at night on my other stuff. Like I close one laptop and then open the other. Mm -hmm. It depends. I've had to put a limit on how many meetups and different things that, that I sign up for because there's so much good knowledge out there and so many different organizations that I've found as a result of the pandemic. Like I'm able to attend a meetup that's hosted in Australia, you know, because I can do it on my computer, but I have tended to kind of overextend myself. So I have to take a moment and walk away and have that quiet time. Yeah, the pandemic has really opened up like these opportunities to do, I guess, like distance meetups or distance talks or things like that. But in that same vein, yeah, it can be super easy to just take on a lot of stuff. And then at the end of the day, you're just completely spent because there was this whole thing, I want to say, like maybe earlier around in the pandemic about Zoom fatigue, which I think people, you know, still have now. One is the frequency of just, you know, doing a bunch of different video calls and stuff. But also, like, it just takes a lot of stamina to be on camera and paying attention and being active like that day in, day out for hours at a time, whether you're giving a talk or you're doing work stuff. Like, it can yeah. really wear you down. So true. That's kind of where my, you know, just kind of like protecting my wellness and taking screen break. At any given moment, I may have two laptops and a large screen going plus the cell phone and occasionally the iPad. So I try to definitely take those that time to just be like, okay, I need to walk away from all this blue light. And, you know, and the tendency is to want to go like turn on TV. And I'm like, no, oh, that's a screen too. Mm -hmm. I'm still a person who really enjoys reading actual physical books, even though I do have a Kindle. So if I'm in that kind of mode, I'll try to read a book or like I said, play with my pup. That usually gets me outside get out in the front yard, even if I'm just kind of sitting out front and just enjoying folks walking by and saying hello and making a little bit of contact that way. But yeah, really trying to be purposeful about not staring at screens all day. Yeah, I'm the same way too. Like, I mean, one thing that I'll do, especially for meetings, I will ask like kind of upfront, like, does this need to be a video call or can this be a phone call? Because if it's a phone call and I don't have to look at a screen, I'll probably be more likely to take that meeting because then mm -hmm. I can do it like, you know, like you said, like if you're outside, if you're taking a walk or something where I don't have to be kind of on, like, I don't know what your setup is at home, but like for me, I have a, like a light on my desk and then I turn on all mm -hmm. the lights in my room. So it's almost like a, like a little mini sound stage. And I'm like, it's bright in here. It's hot. <laughs> I, have to, I have right. to be on camera and stuff. So if it could be a phone call, I'll do a phone call. But also it is, yeah, just about like pacing myself. Like I'll get to a certain time of night. Like if I'm working until eight or nine and I'll just stop because I'm like, I'm not getting a medal for trying to finish this tonight. No. If I finish this in the morning, it'll be just as done then as if I were to try to do it now. Let me go to bed. Let me get some exactly. rest. Let me get some sleep or something. So, yeah. Trying to, to sort of strike that balance, especially when you're doing things on your own or off the clock or something like that can be it can be a lot to try to handle. Absolutely. Let's talk about your book. 
solo to scaled building a sustainable content strategy practice. Now, for those that are listening, you know, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. We'll also have a discount code for you so you can get 20% off. But for those listening who might not have heard about it, can you give them like a brief synopsis of what the book's about? Yeah. Unlike so many great books out there that are about how to do content strategy, what it is and how to do it. This is not that. This is more about how do you assemble a team or act as a team of one to create a dedicated UX focus in my world, the user experience focus content strategy practice. I'm a purist. I still use the phrase content strategy. There are uh, folks who actually my, my day job title is now content designer. We could have a whole, whole separate conversation about, you know, if there's a difference and if, if so, what is it? But I'm talking about building a content strategy practice where all the flavors of UX and content can come together and support an agency or organization in number one, identifying the importance of content as an asset to every business of any size. And then how do you build and sustain a practice where it kind of coexists either, say, with a design up team or a UX team or within an agency if they have a dedicated digital experience team? That's basically the synopsis of what it's about. So you mentioned like content designer. Like to you, what's the difference between a content designer and like a writer or a copywriter. No boy, I'm going to get in trouble now. (laughs) So again, I always lead with UX because I'm a user experience fanatic, I would say, but user experience and focusing on, you know, the human centeredness of the digital experiences that we create that are more focused on the user interface with a digital experience and helping them with things like wayfinding and achieving whatever their top task is, whether it's on an app or a website. I'm not so much interested in my writing about selling you on a brand's or products. I'm more interested in helping you get the product or service that you came to the website or the app for. So that's the difference between, say, marketing copywriting for digital spaces mm-hmm. versus the UX content strategy and content design that I'm talking about. There's also content marketing strategy, which is more, I'm over going to oversimplify, but that's more about, say, content that is created by a brand that you then will disseminate to third parties, whether it be through social media or a guest blog post, or that is all a part of a larger content strategy. Mm-hmm. But that more focuses, again, on marketing and selling someone on a brand or getting them to buy a product versus, again, how do we help them navigate in a digital space? Mm. Hopefully that was clear. That was pretty clear. I think so. For content strategy and content design, we're still having conversations about what is different. Content strategy has evolved. There were a few folks before Christina Halverson, but her book tends to be the one content strategy for the web that everyone remembers the red book that came out that was like, oh my gosh, that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have content people working with UX designers, interaction designers, 
back in the day, human factors engineers that were, you know, designing interactions, right? So content strategy looks across an experience end to end, but a content strategy life cycle is actually a circular kind of thing where you're constantly, you know, you're doing your discovery work to figure out what's out there. You're finding out where your gaps are in content, what you might need to create. You're getting rid of content that might be outdated or stale. And then you're launching with whatever new content. And by the way, some content strategists are also write the content and some don't. Mm. They hand off to another team that does that. Could be UI UX writers, could also be content designers. It depends on the organization, right? Yeah. And then the good old optimization, optimizing, testing, and then going through that cycle again and again. So the content strategy work, I always get asked, when's the content strategy going to be done? And people cringe when I say never. Yeah. Because it should never be done. It should be something that's cyclical, that you're always going back to make sure that you're your content is measuring up to whatever your goals are. Within that, content design kind of has emerged as uh, content that's created. I've heard it referred to as product content design, where your product may be an actual, you know, something that you could buy, you know, on an e-commerce site, but it may well be a, an actual service, right? Say per bank or, you know, financial institution, fintech, but there's some kind of product or service that you're selling. So Content design kind of tends to focus on helping users transact, buy the thing, make the the bank transaction, whatever it is that, you know, again, their top tasks that they're doing. But they're all related. And like I said, there's a lot happening within the industry where we're still trying to kind of not carve out, well, it could be carve out a niche, but it's just to better articulate like, what do we mean when we say content strategy? What do we mean when we say content design? So on and so forth. Mm. So hopefully that didn't confuse people. Hopefully it gave them more kind of think about and, and, <laughs> and go like look up and see what you find. It's kind of amazing how I would say maybe within the past, I'd say roughly about 10 years, how content has started to become more included on design teams. Like I, I distinctly remember when content really used to be more of like a marketing domain and design was more visual. Well, I mean, it's still visual, but design was visual in that they didn't have non-designers or non-visual designers on their right. team. And now we're seeing team structures where there's a, a content designer or a content strategist, or they're sort of included along with designers on like these sort of multimodal kinds of teams, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. If you look at places where agile is practiced agile software development you will find in some places especially larger enterprises where you have like scrum teams for example that might be for a business unit or it might be several within one business unit or whatever it is but you'll have a ux designer ui ux designer interaction designer a program uh, sorry a project and a project product manager Mm-hmm. And the content strategist or content designer on those scrum teams that are embedded in those teams. Or you may have like, you know, within certain product areas where you'll have like what you just talked about, you know, content designer embedded in, in those teams. Or there's the model where it's, you know, content more as a service to an organization where you're kind of, 
your own team and then you kind of send folks out like as work comes in, whatever resources are available. You could be writing a white paper. You could be writing video script. You could be writing anything, mm-hmm. creating content for anything. From a strategic point of view, you're looking across experiences, though, to make sure that the content that you're creating is consistent, that your voice and tone is consistent, that if you call a thing a thing over here, that you're calling it the same thing over there kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's where your strategy kind of starts to to come into play, where you're kind of looking across experiences and across channels to make sure that even if your team and your work as a UX-focused content strategist is not to create, say, the accompanying marketing pieces for a particular product or service, mm-hmm. you still want to be aware of what it, how they're describing things, right? Because yeah. you may need to incorporate some of that copy or content into your work as well. I find that I'm, I do that often at my work. I have marketing counterparts that I work with so that think of the handoff, right? If you think about like, a marketing funnel where at the top you have people that are curious about a product or service and then say they're shoppers and then they start to go through the funnel and maybe there's conversion where you want them to sign up for a loyalty program. There's a a natural handoff that happens in that space where you're not so much marketing to them anymore. Now you're helping them wayfind and get what they need, but they don't need to know that that's a separate handoff. Right. So you need to have that that constant communication with your marketing and other departmental partners that create copy so that, that the experience for the user is seamless. How have you seen content online change since you, I guess, started working as a content strategist? I mean, you've been working with content now for a very long time, like since the early days of the Internet. How have you seen just content in general change? Everything when I was Really getting into digital content was SEO, 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 keywords, keywords, keywords. We were not doing questionable practices like keyword stuffing and all that kind of stuff, but that was the big focus when I got into this work. The content was longer form, even contextual help content, which we now often will kind of classify more of your UX writing and UI UX writing as, you know, that wayfinding content that helps you get from one part of the experience to the next. But back in the day, it was like long help pages and FAQs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we weren't thinking about necessarily the fact that maybe if we create the digital experience in a way that where FAQs and things like that aren't needed, then we're looking at less content and fewer words and getting out of the way of the user. So I think we had to kind of evolve to that space. I think that's one of the places where content partners well with, with user experience researchers, because we can put that, put content in front of people and talk with them in real time using prototypes and sometimes even stuff that's out, out there in the wild and, and understand what it is that people really want and need mm-hmm. because there's a tendency still for some that think that the more content, the better we want to have everything so everybody can find all the stuff. But the problem with that is, is that it becomes so cluttered that people get frustrated and maybe the better is to help them the wayfinding. Maybe it's the IA, the information architecture 
that needs to be more intuitive. So we're helping, like, where would you go to find this thing? Where would you go to find that thing? And understanding that behavior more than just throwing big chunks of content at people and, and wanting them to consume all of that. We know that, well, there's still like the camp that's like people don't read on, especially on mobile screens. But I mean, I think people do, but they, their attention goes to finding the thing that they want and they will read that. But yeah. if we give them too much, then we're overwhelming them. So I think the TLDR is that content has gotten, gotten shorter and more concise and to the point of what the user has come to the experience for in the first place. Now, there's sort of like this flood of content, I feel now. I mean, we're still kind of in the web 2.0 age, which is user-generated content. I remember a web before there was user-generated content, but like now, of course, you have tweets and blogs and TikToks oh and videos and like all this sort of stuff. Now you have AI in the mix. So there's a lot of AI generated content that's out there. In your opinion, like what does it take now to really maintain a strong content strategy? It takes people. I have only scratched the surface of the whole AI. It's overwhelming to me. In the environment that we're in right now, so spring 2023, there's been so many folks, particularly in the content design, content strategy space that have been laid off, partially do because we think that some of this AI technology can, can take the place of, you know, a content strategy or content design. And I think what people are finding out is that it could be assistive. But it's not to be relied on. You still need that system of checks and balances. You still need that human touch and human voice to help an experience be engaging and relatable to the human that's on the other side of it. Yes, you know, things like AI and chatbots and all that, those things are getting more sophisticated. But I would argue that in order to establish and maintain a robust, and relevant content strategy that you you need people to do that. Mm. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned people because we're recording this right now. It's May 18th when we're recording this, just so people know. And I just saw, I think it was maybe yesterday, maybe today, that BuzzFeed, which just sort of shuttered their news department, et cetera, had -hmm. been talking about how they are going to start using AI to help generate, I guess the best way to put it would be to generate affinity content. I don't know if affinity is really even the, the best term for it, but essentially he was telling investors, Jonah Peretti, the guy who who created BuzzFeed, was telling investors that they're going to use AI to generate content, headlines, infinite quizzes, and develop Black, Asian, Latino identity-based content to help corporate brands tap an authentic voice to sell products. That sounds sinister. Yeah, it does. (laughs) So you're going to get AI to try to not only just replicate humans, but also replicate like black, Latino, Asian, and then have the nerve to call it authentic. But I I see companies try to do that. They're like, I'm seeing brands that are looking at how they can tap into AI so they can do that to generate more content. I had not. I'd heard that that BuzzFeed had shut down their news division, which was kind of shocking, but not. This is news to me. And the fact that the word authentic, is that when you said authentic? 
Yeah, it's in the no, it's in the transcript that, that he said. I, I gotta go find that. I'm gonna go find that. I have lots of thoughts, but there is no authenticity without tapping into humanity. Yeah. I don't care how many eyeballs are on AI and how I mean, we've all heard, I hope, the stories of the people who sit in Africa and other countries who are having to look at some of the worst content. I even hesitate to call it that (laughs) on the internet to kind of help filter the bad stuff out. But that's only one aspect. Again, we need humans, right? So all of that still has a human element to it for better or for worse. But there's no way that my lived experience as a black woman of color, well, that was redundant (laughs) in the digital space in technology you are not going to find AI generated anything that's going to be able to relate my story the way that I can. Right. Or the way that maybe one of my Asian American counterparts can share their stories and their lived experiences. I mean, it's just, I mean, good on them for being upfront about it. <laughs> but hey, yeah. Wow, that gave me chills. I'm like, really? Yeah, it's that sounds like some like it's like some Black Mirror kind of shit. Like it's 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 very sinister. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some stories, and I mean, we'll get you know kind of back to talking more about about your work and everything. But I've seen some stories where, like, say, uh, an influencer will like train a Chat GPT model on like tweets or or any sort of long form content, and then use that in lieu of themselves, almost like a digital twin to generate content for them. And I'm wondering, and I don't know, let me not even say that. I don't even want to put that out in the ether, but I feel like I could see a future where companies are trying to sort of mine content that's currently online, sort of like what chat GPT does now and use that in some sort of weird regenerative fashion as Peretti was saying here to create quote unquote, an authentic voice. Yeah. Good luck with that, Perez. I think the thing that comes to mind, too, and again, I have kind of stayed out of the, like, I can't ignore the AI conversation completely because it's it's coming after my work. And so Mm -hmm. not my work at my job. Let me just say that. Not my work, but just my discipline. The thing that I'm most passionate about. Yeah. You just can't get that kind of authenticity. I mean, at that point, then just like insert a chip into my brain and let's call it done. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, it's that's scary for me. And the thing is, too, that I'm hearing is that a lot of what I guess people are finding from chat GPT or whatever other services there are out there is that there's still a lot of what is generated that it that's not accurate. Yeah. You know, attribution to, you know, I have not gone out and said, hey chat gpt who's who's natalie marie dunbar and like what do they do or whatever i know people have done that Mm -hmm. and been served up some very interesting information about things that they've never done in their life so there's that so you still need fact checkers you still need you still need human validation and that's what i'll say about that and you know you mentioned like there are these contractors that are working like in africa and like in in overseas places that are being paid like pennies on the dollar basically to be that human check to be that moderation which is i don't know it's all just really sinister to think about the fact that 
content is starting to go down that route. Yeah, but we're going to keep fighting to pull it back. Oh, yeah, um, I think so. And I think this is cyclical. I think this is, you know, the flavor of the season. And folks are excited about it. And I think there's a lot to be like, I don't want to say afraid. You know, I would I would hesitate to think that this is the end all be all to like, we're going to save a whole bunch of money and not have to have a bunch of content, folks, because we could just generate it from this thing. I think there's a lot of danger in that, but I think that also has to kind of come to fruition, hopefully in not a horrible way. But yeah. Excuse yeah. Me. So let's kind of, you know, switch gears here a little bit and learn more about you and your backstory and how you came to be this this content strategy maven. You're currently in, in Pasadena, California. Is that where you're from mm-hmm. originally? Nope. I was born in Texas in okay. a town called Port Arthur. If that's familiar to anyone, Janis Joplin was born there too. Any Janis Joplin fans out there? But I grew up on the East Coast in New York and New Jersey. We traveled. My father was by day a pharmacist and by night a jazz musician. Oh, nice. Uh, and when the jazz took over, that's when we moved east so he could be proximal to all the amazing jazz clubs in New York City, which I will say back in the day, you could actually take your small child to <laughs> one of those gigs and like sit her over in a corner. This may or may not have happened to me. And, <laughs> you know, and they could listen to the music and be served French fries and a cola. <laughs> that was my life. It was great. In the summers, I would I would go with my dad sometimes, some of his gigs, and it was amazing. Nice. Um, what, what did your dad yeah. play? He played jazz guitar. Nice. Uh, yeah. I was lucky enough to see Herbie Hancock. Well, that's the one that comes to mind because I, I remember uh, we were at the Village Vanguard, and I remember my dad sitting in on a set, and like I always loved Herbie Hancock's music, even as a kid, and just like sitting there just like, eyes like wide open like this is amazing uh and then going to like you know my dad recorded a bunch of albums of his own but also you know as a session guy with with other musicians and being able to go to recording sessions which were painfully long not like it is today you know (laughs) no computers but yeah that was and, and i was just a normal kid going to school always 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 reading or writing though from the age that I could do with it so that's been a theme throughout my life is writing so knowing that like was that something that you really wanted to to focus on like when you like went to high school went to college is that what you ended up focusing on yes and no so I knew that I wanted to be at some point I refined it to like I wanted to be a writer became I wanted to be a journalist I would Wanted to write for newspapers and magazines. That was my jam. And then I went to college and majored in sociology and criminal justice. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I, I took a sociology class and I was just like, I really like this. She's really cool. And I mean, definitely related, you know, the study of social science, because I mean, how else do can we understand the masses of people? I remember when, oh, this is going to date me and aged me but the study the area of study in college at that time was mass communications mm. and so you know we didn't have all the many channels of mass communications that we have now but that was the thing that i knew that i wanted to somehow insert myself into that space i got sidetracked by sociology and 
fell in love with criminology and criminal justice. And somewhere along the way, I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. That never happened. Uh, <laughs> I had a few friends that were, they graduated a couple of years before me. And we were all kind of on that same path. We were very creative people, definitely into, you know, any class that, that allowed writing essays and all that kind of stuff. I was all for it. It's like, don't give me any tests and like make me write 10 papers. I'm good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a few friends that went on to law school and they said, don't do it. Here's why. And I think for me, I think I had some health issues in my last year or so of college. So that delayed me from taking LSATs and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of did a reassessment. And then I went and did something. I did nothing with my degree for a while. I did nothing with really anything. I graduated college and then like ended up working managerial retail for a while. But I was still kind of writing on the side. Mm -hmm. Not very good. You know, I was trying to take a class here and there and everything. And yeah, I went a very, very, very roundabout way to land in becoming a writer. And by the time, like really becoming a writer. Mm -hmm. And by the time I did, I ended up in marketing communications at Farmers Insurance. And the way that I got there was I was, I had been writing. I was in a completely different department. I was actually in our real estate owns and property management, but I was a volunteer for, you know, all different kinds of things. Like we did things with like the March of Dimes and Easter Seals. And I would write for the employee publication um, and do a little article about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And eventually I started putting, getting clips together. Then I had people outside of my full-time job saying, oh, I heard that you write. I've got this friend. She's got an independent magazine so on and so forth. And so I started amassing this collection of clips, as we called them back in the day. And eventually I felt like I had enough to start actually applying internally for marketing communications jobs. And I finally got one. Hmm. So yeah, I started in Marcom. I did this really backwards. I started in Marcom, left that world, ended up being a, a newspaper journalist for Pasadena Weekly, and then got back into digital and jumped right into the user experience space. So that's my crazy background. <laughs> so you kind of had a roundabout way of of like coming back to it. But I'm curious, like during those times when you weren't, I guess, you know, you weren't like professionally writing and that it was your your main thing. But you said you were sort of working in retail and stuff like that. I, I feel like those experiences are still important, like especially right out of school particularly if you went like right from high school to college with no break, sometimes you need a break. And, yep. you know, and that's not to say that, you know, it has to be something that you you really have to do. But like, I'm thinking of, of myself, like when I graduated, I didn't become, a de- I didn't really get into design until I think maybe three years after I graduated. And I was doing, like, I was selling tickets at the symphony. I was I think I worked at Auto Trader for a while. I got fired from mm-hmm. Auto Trader. So, like, I, and, and I had a math degree and I didn't want to go to grad school because I was just tired of school. But like, I had been yeah. doing design on the side, you know, sort of like you were writing on the side. I was still right. designing and doing things like that, but had a, eventually also like you amassed enough work and sort of built a portfolio to the point where I could start actually 
getting design jobs, like real design jobs. So exactly. I think I think that's the good thing. That sort of stuff, you know, I'm going to sound old by saying this, but I feel like it builds character. That sort of stuff builds it character. It builds character. And as I'm listening to you talk, I realize that maybe I've been telling my story a little bit wrong. I think what it does, too, is help you in the content world, in the writing world, find your voice. Mm-hmm. I know my father used to tell me, you will find writing work when you know the story you want to tell and you have something to say mm. or something along those lines. And I was like, okay, that's deep. I'm going to go think about that for about three or four years. <laughs> I think from a design, especially visual design, I think you're learning your aesthetic is the way I want to say it. It's mm-hmm. like seeing the things that make you react, seeing in bad or good ways and kind of honing in on figuring out what your own style is. You know, I definitely have a way when I write long that's different from, you know, the microcopy that I write day-to-day work because sometimes it's just not appropriate. Because <laughs> I definitely have an edge to the way that I tend to write, especially articles. I still, you know, dabble in, in you know, writing long form articles for blogs and things these days. But um, yeah, I think I was just like re- learning and refining my, my own voice in the way that you would learn and refine your own aesthetic. Mm-hmm. All of the things are valuable. All of the the experiences that we have make us the designers and writers that we've become. Yeah, because like, I think what it also does is it gives that perspective of what it's like to be, I mean, I guess you could say, quote unquote, a user as opposed yep. to being like the practitioner. So, I mean, even now when I think about like working at the symphony and working at, at Auto Trader and these other places, like, yeah, I wasn't doing design. I was answering phones and like picking out tickets on seating charts and stuff like that. And it wasn't, it wasn't design. It wasn't math either, but what it did do is sort of just give me a general education about what it means to like talk to people, to help people out, to find out, well, why is this thing confusing? Oh, I see why it's confusing. It's confusing to me. So of course it's Mm -hmm. confusing to you. If you're the person that maybe designed the, the process or the thing, you may not even see that because you've got your blinders on to how, it was built as opposed to how it's being used. Oh my goodness. Yes. That just reminded me of, I might be jumping ahead a bit, but in that crazy circular route that I took, that mm-hmm. was kind of more of a zigzag to get to the work that I do now, even after getting into digital experience, consumer experience, user experience, because it had all those names back in the day. I actually started in content and then I was like, what if I became a product manager? And I did that for a little bit. Mind you, the product that I owned was user-generated content, so I was never very far from content. (laughs) And then I was like, well, okay, what did user researchers do? And that was when I was like, I am finally going to use my sociology degree. And I put on a user researcher's hat for a while, and I did user research. And the reason why that came to mind is that there was nothing more compelling than sitting on the other side of the double mirror that we had in in our usability lab, watching people struggle with something that we thought was so straightforward. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, people are going to be able to use this watch. They're just going to come in. They're going to do this. And we would have the engineers in there. We would have product people, anybody that wanted to come and observe all the way to the CEO. You should come and watch People try to use this thing that you want us to build and we're telling you it's not going to work the way that you think it is. 
yeah. and go through, you know, go through that usability testing. And they're like, no, I don't think this works the way you think it does, <laughs> you know, and then relating that back to what you were saying about, you know, working at the sympathy and I'm going to use a word that runs empathy. <laughs> I've built that. And I'm sure you have through those experiences, those very analog experiences, actually. Right. Yeah. Where we're not using computers and different things to help people. And now we're expecting folks to, you know, pick up a digital device of some sort and be able to to find their way with, you know, beautiful designs and very little words. Like, so how do we make that happen? And that's, right. you know, that building that user empathy. And I think working with the public is that should almost be a prerequisite. Don't tell anybody I said that. Everybody that's listening. <laughs> that's amazing. Now, you worked for a while for yellowpages.com. You you uh, were doing content strategy. You were a UX product manager. And folks that know that listen to the show, I worked there as well for like two years. It was, it was AT&T, but it was like yellowpages.com doing right. website designs and doing like, oh God, what were those old? graphic tiles, XNEGs and X tiles and all that sort of stuff for, for the yellowpages.com website, essentially those little tiles that would pop up that people could oh, click yeah. on. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was what our department was doing and, and making like a ton of web pages, like one page sites, three page right. sites, five page sites. In hindsight, I liked the experience. It was a good experience because it just taught me how to design quicker in that way like right. you have to take the information basically you go into oh what was the thing called ice blue i think was the name of the the software that we use you go into ice blue mm -hmm. you pick the company you're doing it for you have to go and pull like a physical packet of <laughs> where the salesperson has talked to the business i remember that and yeah. like there's a physical packet of like the text that you have to put in and maybe their logo that you have to scan. And our department had one scanner for 30 designers and you had to oh, scan wow. the logo so you could use that, maybe trace it in Illustrator. And like you'd have to put all this together into a website, usually within a matter of hours, like wow. one page sites. I think the limit that they had us at was three hours and then five page sites. No, one page sites were were three hours three page sites were five hours. And then if it was five or more pages, basically the whole day, but like you were not meant to spend more than one day on building a site. And so because of that, even with a team of 30 designers, we were always behind. Like oh, wow. the managers were always yelling at us. Like, why aren't you all getting more work done? And it's like, <laughs> we're designing three web pages, like full fledged web pages a day design content all that stuff putting it together it was a wow it was a harrowing time but i mean i i look back on it fondly because it did teach me i think the utility of just like shortcuts and working fast and like not really having time to sort of mull on a decision for something you just have to kind of put it out there and do it like i feel like some of my best designs were just like shot from the hip because it was like i don't have time to think about how this might look i just have to do it you know, exactly. brand colors. Okay, we'll work with this, blah, blah, blah. How was your experience working with yellowpages.com? So as you're talking about this, I'm remembering when that push came, when those sites were being built for the folks that had listings and they, they had more than the free listing. Mm -hmm. So my experience was the site that held all the listings. 
Okay. Right? We didn't really touch the listings that much, except for when we would add features like these websites. So we had to determine if there was going to be a button or a link that was going to, like, how do we get people from the main yellowpages.com listing site to go into the listing? And how do we organize that information on a listing page? Mm-hmm. Beyond that, we impacted everything from the homepage to the, we used to have city guide pages. Eventually we had some product pages. We started adding articles and different things to the website, to the yp.com main website. When I joined, I still have images of this on the laptop somewhere. It's just like, you know, our yellowpages.com branding. At the time it was, oh, what was it? There, I forget the tagline. I thought I had it and I, I don't, but uh, meet something. That's how mm-hmm. far back I go. And then we had a bunch of just links. There was like very little imagery on the homepage. And it was like links. And again, that was that SEO. It was just like, we need to have city guide links. And what are the most popular cities that people are looking for? Okay, what is our data telling us? Well, yeah. we should have this link. Okay, well, if we're going to have that link, then what's going to happen when people click on it? Oh, we should have, you know, a rich content-driven city page. And that was stuff that I wrote uh, about Jacksonville, Florida, and, you know, Orlando, and Los Angeles, and so on and so forth. Whatever the, I think it was the top 25 cities that people would search for, we had the most robust content for. Eventually, we built that out. And that was when content strategy started to be a thing in the back of my mind. It's like, oh, well, we're not just like saying, oh, we're just going to have this whole bunch of content and we're just going to have SEO value. Mm-hmm. But now we're going to think about how are people going to interact with that content? What are some of the ways that we can expand on this? So eventually we started thinking about other sites that had, you know, UGC, user-generated content. Because when I joined, ratings and reviews were not a thing yet. That was the big, big thing mm-hmm. uh, beyond SEO. We were looking for that organic SEO from user-generated content, but people weren't writing reviews on yellowpages.com. It really took time to like get some traction around that. And then eventually we did. And then we, you know, you could, back in the day, you could make a deal with, you know, different third parties to bring their, bring their reviews onto the site to kind of get, you know, critical mass. And then digging into what is that experience like? How do we, how do we discern? What is a yellowpages.com original review versus one that we might get from a third party? Mm. So all of that is now we're talking about content strategy. Now we're talking about what is that? Not only what does it say, but what does that experience look like? Because content is not just words. Content is an aggregate of all elements, whether it's images, video, whatever it is. All of that is content. But how do you put it together to tell a compelling story? And to help people get to what they need. That was the thing. So that's kind of full circle. But, you know, yellowpages.com is where I wore the hat of editorial producer, which is what I was called back in the day. Mm. Then I went to product management. Then I was a user researcher. And then right before I left, I was still doing kind of the user researcher stuff. But I was also getting back into content because we started doing articles and things like that. I kind of tell people I kind of cut my teeth and all things digital. I did everything but code. <laughs> yeah, I well, I remember my time at, at Yellow Pages. Like, I feel like I did. And this was at a time when, for folks that are listening, like, 
It was the transition from table-based websites to CSS websites. Oh, yeah. And so not only were we having to create these new sites, in some cases, we had to convert sites. We had to take table sites that maybe another designer, like, you know, a few years ago, maybe that doesn't work there anymore. We had to take those sites and then change them to CSS. And I remember I had written a, I had written a CSS framework called slats and i was trying to like get my team on board get my team lead on board because i was like this will help cut down on the time it takes because now all you have to do is just go in and like choose a css variable It'll automatically float to the left float to the right and we're dating ourselves here but like this was still when ie6 was a thing and like cross-browser yep. compatibility was tough it and was. and i remember writing it and like i sent it to my team lead and she was mentioning like well, you know, we're not sure about if we're going to use CSS for layouts because of, you know, different people's browsers and maybe they have Internet Explorer, maybe they have Firefox, maybe they have Opera. And it ended up not being used. I mean, even for web audio, we were using Java applets like this was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, the cut your teeth part. I totally get that because the time it takes to put that stuff together, at least on our end, was we didn't have time to really talk to the client or talk to the business about what it is they need. It's like you get whatever's in that packet and you just have to make it work. You exactly. just have, it almost felt like a like a reality show design challenge. Like you just <laughs> you're presented with such limited information then you have to throw it together and then it gets sent over to QA and you know, once it's out of my hands I'm like on to the next cuz it was basically just a never-ending stream of sites. And right. honestly, the time that I spent there is what inspired me to quit and start my own studio. Cause I was like, wait a minute, I can do these websites like the back of my hand. I'm going to take this, this little framework that I, I uh, created and I'm going to go and try to serve some clients, which is, is what I ended up doing. Excellent. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, now you've worked with, you know, numerous brands over your career, just to name a few, the food and drug administration, Anthem, Kaiser Permanente, et cetera. When you look back at those experiences, like what really sticks out to you the most? That's a favorite question of mine, because what I find that is the common thread between like government agencies like FDA and CTP, Center for Tobacco Products, et cetera, and places like yellowpages.com, which was owned by AT&T, um, and Anthem, highly regulated. They were hmm. all highly regulated. You've got your yellowpages.com owned by AT&T, so we have telecom regulation. you got your healthcare, which is a whole nother ball of wax as, as far as regulatory compliance. You've got, you know, your government, different government agencies that have their own compliance from agency to agency. I think that's been a common theme for me up until, well, I don't want to say up until now because the e-com definitely has its own regulatory uh, exposure as well. Mm-hmm. But I think those experiences helped me learn to balance business goal, user need, voice and tone, all while being very mindful of, you know, steering clear of violating any regulatory uh, compliance issues. I think that's the, the common thread. I didn't go seeking them. Mm-hmm. But I think that's kind of explains the trajectory a little bit where there's a common thread for me. Now, you know, you mentioned earlier in this interview about how, you know, you're doing all this traveling and stuff. Of course, you know, you're you know promoting the book and everything. You're doing your day job and you're really big about prioritizing 
your own well-being alongside your work. Mm -hmm. Um, And you do yoga. You're a yoga teacher. Is that right? Yoga instructor? That is right. I'm on hiatus right now because of the book thing. (laughs) I've been a little busy traveling. But yeah, I um, somewhere back in 2005, I decided that it would be a really fun experience to do a half marathon. Mm. And you may say, what the heck does that have to do with yoga and wellness? Well, (laughs) a lot because I was going to do one half marathon. I was going to walk that thing and I was going to be done. And I was raising money for charity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 10, 11 years later, I was still doing it. And I had become a marathon coach. It was a side thing. I was doing for a volunteer organization. But what I found was not, I was not only coaching. I was also, I use the term racing very loosely, but I did finish every marathon or half marathon that I ever started. And that number is somewhere around 25 or 30 now. But the knees start to hurt and the hips start to hurt. And someone said, you should try yoga. And I'm like, but I did. And I didn't like it. (laughs) I was in somebody's living room trying to pretzel my body into a pose. And there was no instructor because we were watching a video and I had a really bad experience with it. So I went and I took a couple of classes because I was like, you know, I had my coaches telling me this might help you, you know. Just go check it out. And I'm like, oh, like, this is different, you know, when you have an actual instructor. Mm-hmm. But I'm a person who lives in a, a larger, curvier body. And what I found was that there were instructors that did not know how to teach me yoga. Mm. They would just say, well, if this is too difficult for you, you can just rest in child's pose. I'm like, hey, okay. <laughs> I would walk into studios after doing a training walk or run, because eventually I did start running more. Oh. 15 miles, but I would have a yoga teacher literally look me from toe to head and go, you know, this is going to be kind of hard, right? Mm. And so, yes, it's a little plug for a little bit of body body positivity and awareness. So I started looking for yoga for people like me. And cheesy as it sounds, I figured out I had to become the yoga teacher that I wanted to see. Mm. And during the time where I had gotten laid off from a job and I was only marathon coaching and, you know, doing two weeks here, one month there, you know, content work, someone said to me, have you ever thought about like, uh, I kind of had a dance background when I was a kid. Have you ever thought about, thought about teaching dance again? Or I'm like, eh, no, I started seeing online material from a yoga teacher that was based at the time in Nashville. And she had created this platform called Curvy Yoga. Hello. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another and I was consuming her content and like practicing along on her website. And I remember getting an email saying, you know, I'm going to open up yoga teacher training in the coming months. And if you're interested, send an email. And I sat there and I thought about it. And I'm like, well, this is probably not going to be my career career, but I'm already doing the marathon coaching thing. Ironically, one of the ways that I would try to help people quote unquote, get into their bodies more for marathoning, I bought a yoga anatomy book because it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, that was one of the books that I had to buy because I did sign up for that yoga teacher training. I did my 200 hour training and it helped me to be not only a better marathon coach, but when I got back into the corporate world, it made me aware of the fact that working 10, 12, 14 hour days was not doing my body any justice. Mm-hmm. 
It was not psychologically safe. It was not tenable for years and years at a time. I'm still good for, you know, a 17 hour launch, but because <laughs> sometimes it'll take that long. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just started to be more and more aware of how I wasn't being kind to my body and ex- still expecting to put out the, the, the hours of work that I was doing from week to week and day to day. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that focus now, ironically, as I am going out and speaking about my book and talking about the importance of content as an asset and that kind of thing, the talks that I'm doing now are more focused on a chapter that I talk about maintenance and specifically what it takes to keep a strong practice core, focusing on the health and wellness of the practitioners who make the practice what it is. Mm-hmm. The thing about content strategy is there's a part in the book where I'm talking about, I think I call it three persistent principles. And one of those things is always be educating. You're always going to be explaining to whether it's a new designer, a new product manager, a new you know person in senior leadership, the importance of content as an asset, the importance of content strategy and content design. I can lament for days with other content. Practitioners don't even have to be a manager or leader. There's Somebody always has that one deck that explains, okay, this is what content strategy is. This is what it's not. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. This is how you engage us and so on and so forth. And as much as it sounds like I can repeat that from rote and it's not like taxing, it actually is because you're always advocating. Always. I don't know why, but it is a thing where we're always having to advocate for the importance of of content as an asset and having the people on board to get that work done, which is why I wrote the book, because people often ask me, how do I find people like you? How do I build a content strategy practice? What does that even mean? And do I actually need one? So full circle. <laughs> and book. There we go. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's it's really, I mean, smart that you were able to kind of pull that insight out of something that, you know, just as we sort of spoke about earlier, pulling insight out of something that may not be directly related to the work that you do, but you're still able to apply it. So even as you're going through this with yoga, you're finding out, oh, this is analogous to something I can use to talk about content strategy. My first talk that I pitched to Confab, which is Brain Traffic, Christina Halverson's uh, big content strategy conference. We actually just celebrated the last one a few weeks ago. But a couple of years back, I pitched a talk called Yoga, UX, and Content Strategy. And it still continues to be my most requested talk. Nice. (laughs) Because I married the two because I was so passionate about both of them. And in that talk, I talk about creating safe and accessible spaces in the same way that we do in a yoga studio for people of of differently abled bodies. We also want to be able to bring that same approach to the digital information spaces that we create in. So, yeah, I was trying to keep the two separate and then Somehow they got conflated and I was like, well, let's just run with it. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, those are the best talks, though, too, when you can really sort of make an analogy between two disparate things. Like for some reason, those really seem to click with audiences. So good on you for that. Yeah, thank you. What does success look like for you now at this stage in your career? I don't want to describe myself as necessarily a late bloomer because I've been over here blooming for a bit. 
<laughs> but um, I think the book has elevated things. I started getting into more public speaking literally weeks before the lockdown happened. I spoke at the local World IA Day conference, which the LA chapter actually met, or the LA version happened here in Pasadena because we're just, just north of LA. And uh, that was one of those places where I did a talk and it was about information architecture and, and content strategy. Another mashup because I did a play on what is it? Does it spark joy? The Marie Kondo whole bit about yeah. creating nice spaces. And now things are like escaping my brain. But anyway, that was another mashup talk that I did. I'm not an IA, even though I do dabble in information architect. I wouldn't self-describe myself in that way. But we're often joined at the hip with IA and content strategy. So I was trying to show the kind of the places where we overlap and how we support each other. And that was one of those places where somebody was like, oh my God, that talk was so great. How do I find somebody like you? How do I build a practice? That kind of thing. And then two weeks later, walked out. <laughs> and I started looking at places where um, I could, all of a sudden there's like, I can't go to that conference in Vancouver, British Columbia, but since it's going to be online, I could probably pitch a talk. Mm-hmm. And I started pitching talks. And then somewhere along the way, I belong to an organization called Women Talk Design. So women and non-binary folks, it's kind of like a, a speaker's bureau and training place for folks who are in this design space who are maybe underrepresented as speakers and facilitators and that kind of thing. And I think that's where Lou Rosenfeld encountered some of my talks and articles that I had been doing. And he asked to be introduced to me. And I I kid you not, I was like, oh, he must want me to speak at a conference because that's what I had been doing. And it was, I tell the story all the time, but I'm going to tell it again. 25 minutes into a 30 minute conversation was when it was like, oh, he's wanting me to maybe write a book. Okay. (laughs) And he's like, we should schedule more time. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And here we are. That was pretty phenomenal. And very unexpected. But if you're going to write a book, I would say doing it during the pandemic was not a bad thing. Yeah. (laughs) I had something to do with my time. What is it that sort of keeps you motivated and inspired now to continue this work? I am accepting my place uh, as you used the word maven earlier. And that's like one of my favorites now. Kind of accepting my place with humility and grace. But also I'm reminded often by my son, I did not get here by being lucky that I put the work in. And so now I'm wondering, where does that take me? I mean, I love the work that I'm doing. I love the team that I'm on. Design and particularly content design is elevated as much as research and visual design. And I have a lot of respect for the leaders of our org where I work at Walmart. Beyond that, I want to continue to motivate others, whether that be through some type of coaching, you know, I, I was at the last confab a couple of weeks ago and just seeing, particularly there was a time when, again, identifying myself as a woman of color in the tech space in content where I was the only one in the room and to be a confab and to have more than a dozen people who look like me coming up and saying, how'd you do it? Or thank you for doing it. 
mm-hmm. or, you know, just being motivated by their excitement of being in these spaces that weren't necessarily paths that, that we could see ourselves in. And just reaching out and really just when people ping me on LinkedIn and they're like, can I bend your ear for a few minutes? I'm curious about this or that. Yeah, just wanting to be able to to talk to people and, and again, kind of wave the flag of the importance of content as an asset. I think I've said that like 20 times now, if your listeners are telling. And I think eventually helping people who may read the book and still say, I'm only a, a, a team of one and I need help. And can you come help us build this team? Maybe that's in my future as a consultant. But right now I'm kind of, you know, I'm happy with what I'm doing. And um, there may be another book in me. I don't know. I like like I like writing long. <laughs> I enjoy it. So, you know, as we kind of get to the end of this, I'm curious, like, what do you want the next chapter of your story to be? I mean, where do you see yourself like in the next five years or so? I have been lucky enough to be included in a in a group of peers that are kind of leading in the content strategy and content design space, whether it's authors or, you know, leaders at, at certain large uh, companies. And, and I was trying to think of the word enterprises and it just went out of my head. We've recently published Content Design Manifesto. If you Google it, you'll find it. Literally, mm-hmm. it, it came out like a week or two ago. And there was a, a gathering of a small group of leaders in the space who came together to actually think about what is the work that we're doing now? How do we define it? Where do we want it to go? So in similar ways to the Agile Manifesto, we got together and, you know, kind of did this, you know, we kind of framed the document, the purpose and the whole thing and released it out into the wild. And I can't even remember how many hundreds of people have signed this thing to say, yes, we're on board. So I think for me, helping to not direct, but just contributing to what this discipline can still become. And aside from, you know, chat GPT and all that stuff aside, when folks come back and go, yes, we actually do need content people, being ready for that and helping people ramp up again. I've done that in my career already, probably twice now. There's been some waves where it's like, eh, we don't really need, we've got content, it's good. We don't mm-hmm. really need a full practice or a full team, only to find in a couple of years later, uh, actually, yes, we do. We've got <laughs> way more content than one person can handle or that no person could handle. And we, we really need someone who's, you know, adept at, at getting this done. So I see myself as being a part of the, the folks who collectively have a voice in guiding and mentoring the direction of where the where the the practice of content strategy and content design are going to take us Hmm. well just to kind of wrap things up here where can our audience find out more information about you about your work about the book like where can they find that online oh my goodness i am still on twitter (laughs) my (laughs) handle is the literati t-h-e-l-i-t-e-r-a-t-i um, I same handle on Instagram. I do try to keep things updated with where I'm speaking, teaching, yeah, not yoga, but content strategy stuff. I'm on LinkedIn. I do welcome people to reach out to, you know, look up Natalie Marie Dunbar. By the way, there is a Natalie Dunbar who is an author who writes romance novels. She is a woman of color. When I had the very fortunate problem of how do I disambiguate? 
That's why I used my middle name because I asked, that was one of the things I asked the first things I asked Lee Rosenbaum. Like I never thought I would be able to ask this question of a publisher, but now that I have one, how do I do that? And he's like, use your middle name. I'm like, duh. <laughs> so I'm out there, and all of those LinkedIn, Instagram, all of those will link you to my. I have a website. On that website, you can sign up for my newsletter. I always tweet a link to my newsletter. I, I put it out monthly-ish. Again, I'm late, so I need to get on that within the next couple of days. And that'll tell you where I'm speaking and all those good things. So I welcome folks to to follow along in my adventures. All right. Sounds good. Well, Natalie Marie Dunbar, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show I think if there's anything that people can get from this is that you have such a a passion and a curiosity for content strategy and how it just works within not the only the digital world, but in our world at large. And that's something that especially as more and more content gets created, you know, we talked about AI and all that sort of stuff as more and more content gets created. I am drawn back to what you said about like it still is going to need humans like it's still going to need people in order for content to really thrive and to have good content strategy. And I hope that people get a chance to pick up the book. Like I said, we'll put it in the show notes, but I'm so glad that we have you to be someone that is like a practitioner of this to help kind of steer us all in the right way. So thank you so much thank for you. coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it being here and chatting with you. Big thanks to Natalie Marie Dunbar, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Natalie and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you liked this episode, let us know. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify, on Amazon Music, uh, you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, or leave us a voicemail message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.